People say treat yourself like you need a reason. But McDonald's treats are perfect for every day. Like bold McCafe iced coffee. Get any size for $1.69. Or pick up any size sweet tea for a dollar. The largest served in an insulated cup that keeps your tea cold. Feeling a little extra something-something? Try the classic bakery sweets like an apple fritter. With so many ways to treat yourself, you don't need an excuse. Just come back tomorrow. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is Politics Done Right. Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT. We have a great program for you today. First off, we have two great interviews. The first one is Abigail R. Eastman, who is the author of Rage. And secondly, we have Randy Fricky, who is an author, a political columnist, and an independent, uh, act, independent voter activist. But you know, folks, before we get busy into the program, I want to remind everybody that right here at KPFT, the only station, only community station in this entire southeast part of Texas that gives you a progressive point of view, we do need your support. No matter how much, no matter what, please give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that is 713-526-5738. Or go to kpft.org and click that donate button. Please donate in the name of Politics Done Right for KPFT. We will not be here without your support. And you know the voices that we put on air, the necessary progressive voices and otherwise, or voices this entire area needs. So we're counting on you. Please go to kpft.org and click that donate button. And make sure that we stay funded. But anyhow, let's get busy. Today we have the honor to have Abigail Arisman. It's, she's an author of The Radical State, How Jihad is Winning Over Democracy in the West. An award-winning journalist she is and an essayist. She has contributed to Foreign Policy, Forbes, Salon.com, The New Republic, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times. I'm getting tired saying all this stuff. The World <laughs> Policy Review and other venues. She is a regular contributor to the investigative project on terrorism and has spoken widely on the subject, including appearances on uh, WNYC's Brian Lehrer Show, BBC News, and CNN. For more information, remember to consult her at abigaileasman.com, A-B-I-G-A-I-L-E-S-M-A-N.com. Her latest book, Rage, Narcissism, Patriarchy, and the Culture of terrorism welcome aboard abigail how are you doing today 
I'm good, thank you. I love how you say that. Well, let, let, let me tell you something. Um, I started to read the beginning of your book and you took me on a journey through a run through New York. I'm telling you something. I like your way with words. Uh, I can see why you win the awards. I can also see uh, you take people where you are as you write. And that's a great thing for somebody like me, at least. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, before we get started at uh, deep into this stuff this is a political show but we don't necessarily get very political with people who aren't necessarily political but i kind of think that you are so what are your thoughts on where we are in america today let's just talk about it from a from a political point of view well (laughs) how long you got well actually since i want to talk more about rage give me whatever you want and i'll kind of I, 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 I'll tell you, I think if, if you want um, where we are specifically today, um, I think we're on the cusp and I like to think we're on the cusp of something very hopeful. I think we are going from, and this is this obviously relates very closely to my book, we're going from an administration under a man who um, was, was accused under oath of having beaten and raped his first wife. Um, who was known to have beaten at least one of his children, to the administration of the man who created the Violence Against Women Act. And I think that's about as good a metaphor for where we were and where we're going um, as I can possibly give you. You know something? That was actually pretty beautiful. I mean, I, and the, the fact that you actually use the word, you're hopeful in this transition. I mean, I, I, I am always hopeful that if we stay engaged, we can get things done, that we can effect change. I'm always hopeful about that. Uh, what, what, was, what felt a little bit terrible about this was that there were 74 million Americans who felt okay. I don't, say, I, don't, I don't necessarily say that they all agree with what we had in power, but somehow were willing to continue what we had. And um, in, in, in that light, I want to ask you, what, how do we get to those Americans? I mean, I like your, your book seems like the, the type of books that you write and having more people write books like that seem like an antidote. Your thoughts? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I would like to think that my book was something of an antidote because that was part of why I, I wrote it. Um, not just for the current administration, but for a general culture of terrorism, which is where we are in America and around the world right now. There's an enormous amount of violence. There's a rise in violent crime. There's a rise in domestic violence. There's a rise in hate crimes. Um, I think part of why why that is and part of why it, it turned into 70, 74 million votes for Donald Trump is that much of this is generated by fear. You know, we, we, we hate what we fear. There's this fight or flight response and people fight against once they're, what they're afraid of and very charismatic or populist leaders succeed by making people afraid. That's how they gain power. And in the process of making people afraid, they also make them, many of them, more tolerant of violence, sometimes more violent themselves, because there is this enemy that has to be vanquished. Um, I, I genuinely believe, and I am an optimist, 
but I genuinely believe that without that voice in power, with a more calm, kind, empathic voice, that will change. Because um, people let, will no longer be as afraid. Let's examine those 74 million uh, people because, um, and, and we are going to get into, uh, and I think you're kind of edging, much of what you're saying sort of mimics some of the things that, that you say in, in, in the passages of the book. But I want to examine the 74 million people since you opened that door. Um, you, you talk about fear. Yeah. Fear, tell me what are the fears? Uh, look into the eyes of those 74 million people. What is it that they have to fear, really? That they have to fear or that they think they have to? That they think they have to fear. That's a better Very way of putting time. it. Um, they feel that they have to fear being replaced, losing mm -hmm. their status, losing their prestige, losing their power, losing their position in society, losing their jobs. Um, most of the time, the things that we fear most in life are the things that we fear losing. So if you fear losing something, um, you will do whatever you can to protect it and to protect your possession of it, your power over it. How do you tell people that they're fearing losing something they never had? Oh, but they did. Explain. Well, I, I, to say they never had it would be to say there's no such thing as white privilege, and I think that there is. I am so glad. I, I, again, you open the, you always open the door <laughs> first, you know. And uh, when I do my interviews, I try honest. to make it very pleasurable for the person that I'm interviewing, and I, I, I kind of lead things in certain. But you're, you're great. Now, now that you're talking about um, white privilege, I'm. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you are white, I think. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, when we talk about white privilege in my domain, uh, I know that people think it exists. I know that people live it. I know that when I go into a store that I'm treated differently than somebody with a different hue than I am. But I, from how, where I came from, that to me is, uh, what's the word that I, that I want to use? And I want you to expand on this for me. Uh, when I talk about something that they never had, I've always seen racism and that privilege as a tool. In other words, it was a tool for, in my opinion, for separation in such a manner that a few elite, including the honorary white, notice I said the honorary white, was also an accomplice of that to keep everybody in their place and keep just a few on top. I'd like you to tell me if you follow what I'm saying. I think I do. Okay. And you want me to say something about it? I want you to, right. I, I want you to, to expand on that within the nature of your books, if you will, because I think, I think one of the reasons this white privilege thing lasts so long is because we've been fighting it in the wrong manner. And I'd like to, your thoughts on that. Ooh, um, I think I should also point out that I'm not just white, but I'm Jewish. Okay. Being Jewish, and especially someone who lives most of the time in Europe, um, I am conscious of and have felt what I know many Black Americans feel. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know what it is to be hated and cut out because of who I am. Mm -hmm. 
whether I'm even a practicing Jew or not. I know that it is dangerous where I live to be Jewish. Um, so I understand where that feeling comes from, but I also feel that you are really on the button when you talk about the elite and this group of people who have tried to keep everyone else, including the Jews, including Blacks, including American, Asian Americans, keep them down. Um, and I think that is still the same thing. It is this, they have this power. They've always had this power throughout the world. And anything that threatens it becomes the enemy. So you have, you have two ways of dealing with that. And there are those people who are raised in cultures and raised in families and schooled to be empathic and inclusive and not to fear what is other. And you have people who are raised and trained in their cultures, in their families, in their schools to fear what is other because it's a threat. And if you fear it, you hate it. Now, I, I tell you something interesting, and, and then I, I want to go a little bit deeper into your book. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people look at the privileges and, and the racists and all these haters as, uh, uh, they, they look at them as, you know, you know, these bad people and all of that. Ironically, as I grew up, as I grew older, I actually felt sorry. I Here I am as a black man and a grieved, a Latino, a Caribbean, all these things all in one package. And when I look at the racist, when I look at the sexist, when I look at the homophobe, a homophobe of which I used to be until I grew up and learned, I actually feel a real sense of pity for the person. That's interesting in two ways. One is that I agree with you. I do too, although I feel more compassion than pity. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. Pitying somebody is a way of putting them beneath you. And I try very hard not to see any of us. You know, I may disagree with somebody's politics, but I don't want to look down on them. I just want to feel more compassion for them and hope that I can change their minds. Thank you. Thank you, because I think you corrected me appropriately. It's not pity that I feel. It is compassion. You're right. Uh, you're, you're, and thank you for, I mean, words have, words have meaning. And I, I, I stand corrected on that. I, I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. Um, Let's, let's go into rage, narcissism, patriarchy, and the culture of terrorism. The average person that reads that title says, what the hell does narcissism, patriarchy, and terrorism have in common? And I think the idea here is that you're going to connect those dots. So start connecting for me. Narcissism, which is what we've just lived through. Um, it is difficult to connect the dots because it's not a linear connection. It's, it's really a web um, of the three of them. But a, a person who is narcissistic is usually someone who um, is reacting from shame um, and, and a sense of needing to overcome that shame. And so they make themselves greater than everybody else. And the worst thing that can happen to somebody like this is to feel shamed, which is what we're living with with, with Donald Trump at the moment. Um, and what happens when they feel that kind of 
shame is they grow violent. They become enraged. And that's the title of the book is Rage. Um, their rage is what can lead to terrorism. Part of what leads to narcissism and part of what leads to a terrorist kind of culture is a patriarchal culture or a patriarchal hierarchy, um, which is sort of part of what a lot of people call toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. The idea of the man as this muscle-bound, knight in shining armor, warrior who is going to save the world, Sly Stallone, you know, all of these people, Rambo, um, who are going to, to somehow rescue everybody by the virtue of their greatness and their strength. And that is actually a very dangerous image because it, it promotes the idea that Goodness is power, strength is power, and not just power, but power over other people, other things. Um, and a narcissist tends to see himself, particularly a male narcissist, tends to see himself in that way as this over, you know, this all powerful savior of the universe. Um, and when you pull that out from under him, he becomes enraged. So it's all very complicated and intermingled. Um, so it's not a linear, linear connection, but they are very closely connected. Well, I mean, the fact that you do have more male uh, terrorists and you have female terrorists, I think, uh, give such credence to patriarchy as being uh, sort of a genesis of that kind of behavior. And and I I have not seen, you know, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound sexist, but I have not really seen too many women that I would be able to consider narcissist either. So, uh, well, I think you're, it depends on how you define a narcissist. Exactly. When women who are raised in certain cultures um, that breed narcissism by the nature of that culture mm -hmm. can be absolutely the example. Often, well, the difference that you often see. Um, and this happens very often in Middle Eastern cultures, is the association of the I with the we. So somebody may not be narcissistic as a person, but views the we as superior to everybody else and will die for that we, for that for the ummah, as they say in, mm -hmm. in Islam. And um, this is where you often do get women who become suicide bombers, for instance. Uh. Okay, I see. Now, it's interesting that you, you brought in some, some of the Middle East here, because um, in uh, this sort of a two-part question or, or a twofer, because um, we tend to call what we have here not terrorism, but something else. Mm -hmm. But over there, terrorism. Now, you've interviewed uh, a lot of white supremacists, as well as you've interviewed jihadists. Tell me if there's a difference, if the genesis of their behavior is the same. Kind of give us a breakdown. As what, I, what I hope that'll do is kind of take some of the blinders off of Americans. The genesis is exactly the same. It is exactly the same. It is still this sense of us and, you know, you and me, us and them. Um, the sense of needing to protect the we that is us, that is me, against the them that is you. Um, and the you is always this threat to the we. And that's true for white supremacists who look at blacks and Asians and Muslims and Jews 
as other. And it's true for radical Muslims who see themselves as above and beyond other Muslims who are most at risk and non-Muslims. So it's, it's the same thing. And it comes out of families that are structured very much the same way with the same kinds of beliefs about where we are as people and who has rights and who does not have rights and what is good and what is not good and what is power and not is what not power. Now, is the United States now in our current form uh, more so than before? And I'd really like to hear that, let's say, because if we, we, if we throw in the, 18, in the 1700s and 1800s in, are we at this point in our history a culture that is creating more terrorism or, uh, or, or getting, you know, where do you see us on that scale? I think you could say that we're creating more terrorism on many levels. I don't know, I, I, I'm not in a position to say whether we are more violent because again, if you go back a few centuries, people were more violent in general um, in their interactions on the streets. Um, but there's certainly more, more public violence, more general violence. And part of that, of course, is the availability of weapons that can do more damage than they were able to do in the 17th century and the 18th century. Um, but also we are a culture increasingly in a culture of extremes and the far right and the far left are both, and this goes back to it again, experiencing their own kind of narcissism. And it's again, the same issue of, you know, it's my way or die. You do it my way or I'm going to come and get you. And this is happening as well on college campuses with a lot of students who refuse to listen to ideas that they disagree with, um, refuse to allow right-wing speakers and will have riots and, and sometimes they get violent, refuse to allow books, don't wanna read books that they think they don't approve of. I think that's very dangerous. And I think it's in its way as dangerous as what's happening on the far right. Interestingly, that politics done right, that's where, we, if, if I must say myself, we excel in that we bring in left-wingers, right-wingers, anarchists, everybody gets a chance to interview here and, and put out, because I, I agree with that. I completely disagree with what occurred at Berkeley and these other places where they don't allow the right-wingers. I think the easiest way to expose what I think is wrong with the right is just to let them talk, you know? <laughs> I mean... I've always said that, let them talk and then ask questions. If you, when, I do, when I talk to, I, I, I wrote a book called uh, How to, uh, I mean, it's worth it, how to talk to your, uh, your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors, right? And most of talking to them has always been asking them questions because usually when, the question, when they answer the questions as far as their wants, it turns out to be they generally want progressive wants economically and socially, well, I don't discuss things. I, I, when you get into religion, I can, there's no way that I can go there, right? Because it's, that, that's a different thing. That's an imaginary thing. You have to decide if you want to have faith or not. Uh, in that light, um, I have one concern that I, that I just heard, and I'd like maybe if you could expand on that for me. When we talk about the far right and the far left, um, do you really think there is some sort of... 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. 
but we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-800-941-2358 to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma or relapse, for young adults, for adults 50+. For LGBTQ patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas, a confidential program for first responders and military, and a faith-based program. Recovery Centers of America accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-800-941-2358. 800-941-2358. An equivalence there. I think there's a potential for it. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I'm not, for, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who believes that Antifa is a thing and that, um, that, that the Antifa movement, which is somehow led by, I don't know, George Soros, I guess. Right. It's not a movement really. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't exist, but right. I'm not one of those people who, who sees this tremendously violent far left movement. On the other hand, I think there's potential. So help me out here, because I, I, I agree with that answer, right? How do we mitigate that? Because at this point in time, they're not equivalent. But as you say, they could become equivalent. And I think that would be, as I, I, I as, a, as a leftist, I think the left is very virtuous. And um, in, in, in what we do, based on what we believe in. And I, I see the right otherwise, not as bad people, just as misled people. And my question then becomes, how do we prevent what you just said from really occurring? Because I think you're right. I think, um, and I, I talk about this a lot in, in one of the chapters of, of, uh, of Rage, which is the culture of terrorism chapter. When um, I talk about what has happened to the left and what is happening to, to the youth, particularly in America, but also in, in Europe, where I live most of the time. Um, and that is this kind of molly coddling of, of a generation and now going on to a second generation that is, in fact, has been, has been studied as being the most narcissistic generation we've ever had. Um, if you continue to give in to this and you continue to say, okay, we won't, we won't teach these books, we won't listen to these speeches, we won't allow these things that you disagree with. Um, two things will happen. One is that it will increase the likelihood and level of their rage when they are crossed because they become less and less accustomed to having to deal with things that make them uncomfortable. And it also will limit their exposure to what I think is the most important thing in gaining empathy, which is literature. And I believe very deeply in the power of the arts and in literature to instill empathy, to read empathy in people. And if you're telling college students that they don't have to read literature because they don't like it, we're going to end up with people who have much less empathy. And then, then they will be more violent. Wow. 
Um, let me let me first say that we're kind of running low on time, and um, this interview didn't go at all as I thought it would. I thought it would have been a whole lot more antiseptic relative to your book. I think this is a much more enlightening interview for uh, our audience, and I think that'll just give the impetus for a reason why they should listen to, uh, first of all, get your book and listen to the words emanating from the book, because um, I enjoyed this Dearly, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? Oh, that's the question I always ask people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I honestly don't know. I I think you asked me some very good questions. It's concerning to me. um, One thing that we didn't talk about, and that is a very big part of, of rage, is the issue of domestic violence in families and against women and um, the fact that this is not taken as seriously as it needs to be. People don't understand it. They don't understand what the experience is. And the experience is one of terror. It is a true terror. And it needs to be looked at better. It needs to be legislated better. Um, I would hope that people start to understand that private violence is public violence, that what happens in the home happens to everyone. Um, so I would just hope that people, whether they buy my book or not, start to look at what domestic violence is really about and how it affects everybody. And that is why I always ask that last question, because first of all, I get enlightened by, wow, uh, next time around, I should have, I saw that notion in your book, and it's something that I really should have asked likely in the beginning. I didn't. So thank you so kindly for bringing that up. Uh, look, uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed this interview. And uh, I, I hope folks that are listening to, the, to, to us right now, go out there and get the book. You know, I don't always tell folks after we do interviews to go get the book or what, get this book. Abigail R. Eastman, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you very much. I'm sure you enjoyed Abigail. Uh, that was a, uh, I, I really enjoyed that interview because we went into areas that we initially hadn't thought about going into. But anyhow, folks, please remember, go to kpft.org, kpft.org. Please support this station as we go forward. We need your support. We simply cannot do it without you. Again, we are here, all of us, doing our volunteer work to make sure that we provide you with these programs. These, we provide you with what we call in Spanish, alimentación de la mente. We give you nourishment for the mind. So please give us a call at 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org. Click that donate button and say, I want to support politics done right on KPFT. Well, let's go ahead and have a little talk with Randy Fricky. I'm here with Randy Frick. Is that how you say your name? Real close. Fricky. I pronounce the E on the end. You pronounce the E at the end. Randy Fricky. Uh, Randy yes. Fricky is the author of the book, America's New Revolution. But I, that's not the only reason I wanted to have Randy here. Randy is somebody that is politically engaged. And for anybody who follows my sites, know that I believe 
in a particular phrase that says political involvement should be a requirement for citizenship. And the reason I say that is because a lot of what's happening in our society today is because too many of us refuse to be politically engaged, irrespective of the whether you're on the right, left, middle, top, bottom, or whatever. And uh, when I heard from Randy, I, I, I was impressed. And then he said he wrote a book. Said that's even better. Anyway, Randy, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, look, tell me a little, first of all, tell me in, in, in a couple minutes a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I've been involved in Colorado politics for many years. Uh, in 2004, I ran for Congress from Colorado's third district as a Democrat at that time. And then shortly after that, after um, I left the uh, Democratic Party in 2010 and then became a uh, very proactive independent voter, independent uh, voter activist. And so, um, which kind of brings me to uh, this point now where I, um, I've now offered, uh, authored a couple books, uh, of course, America's New Revolution is the latest one right now. So, um, yes, I've been very active uh, in politics, uh, you know, at the state level here in Colorado, as well as nationally. So, now, I understand. Uh, let me interrupt for one quick second, because there's something that I think you, you let slip by when you spoke to me. And I think you said that, hey, I was talking about that in that way of voting before it became Vogue. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, okay, I think what um, I think the important thing here that I'm trying to probably emphasize and as an independent voter, as far as um, one of the organizers of the movement, um, I call it a movement because um, millions of independent voters have been disenfranchised considerably over the last few years. And so I became more engaged politically as an independent uh, in um, trying to get uh, recognition for independence. Now, in what, way, in what way would you say that the independent voters are disenfranchised? Well, I've got two numbers for you. Mm -hmm. 2016 mm -hmm. uh, presidential election. In that, uh, in, those, in those primary elections, 26 million independents were denied voting. Also similar in 2020, just now, this, this, this year, um, relatively close to that same number were denied access because a lot of the Democratic uh, and Republican parties are closed primaries. Independents cannot vote unless they, they register to vote that one party or the other. So that's, that's what we're trying to overcome in this movement. Now, do you consider that um, if you want to vote for a Democrat, then why not just register as a Democrat to vote for them? And if you need to vote for a Republican, vote. Well, I guess it's because you may want to vote in one in one set of races for one side and then another set of races for you. You don't necessarily want to restrict yourself to one side. Well, correct. I think one of the things about Colorado passed legislation a couple of years ago where um, independents can vote in uh, they can choose whether to vote a straight Republican ticket in the primary or a Democratic ticket. Uh, so they opened that. I call that a semi. Uh, some people might call it semi-open primary. I call it a semi-closed. 
I, I think but, I more agree with you in that regards because I think you should want to be able to choose uh, maybe in the attorney general, you have more interest in, in what the Republicans have to offer. And then maybe in the uh, in, in for a representative, you may have more interest in what the Democrats have to offer. So, yeah, I, I see your point. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things and then to go, actually, I want to move. Um, basically, one of the things that we campaign for as independents right now in this movement is that we want to go to a totally um, nonpartisan open primary system mm -hmm. in every state or even nationally. So, um, and I have just proposed, and this is in my book, um, in the last chapter there, where I, I am proposing that we go to, that we have uh, a national independent voter presidential primary. So we have our own, where we can get our own candidates in front of the American people. And so there's, so we're not trapped into that, uh, what I call the uh, party voter prison, right. the Democrats and Republicans. So we're trying to escape that. And, and I feel uh, that if we can establish independent primary, this is going to be, uh, obviously it's going to make waves with the two parties. But that's the idea. That's what we want to happen. We but don't, won't you then it. consider, uh, uh, to be honest, Randy, if you if you do things that way, wouldn't the, uh, the independent just become an independent party, a party called the independent party, just like you have a Democratic Party, you could call it whatever you want? I understand. I get that question a lot. That's pretty normal. You know, I, we're trying to avoid the party label. Because there's, we have such a broad spectrum of, of political interests in the independent voters. I mean, we're all over the spectrum, mm -hmm. left, right, middle, whatever. So, uh, so we don't want to narrow our focus into a party per se. We would prefer to stay a strong movement and develop the nonpartisan primary system and then advance as well into the independent uh, primary system oh, so that's that's kind of what this is what i do this is what i'm really uh excited about and, and making moves towards that goal in 2022 and 2024 okay let's let's go ahead and talk some about your book because i find it i, I find your table of content is quite interesting and i actually i i i, I like it um uh what's the Thank state you. of our union yeah the state of our union yeah it's not good um, and the problem is the two party systems have, have, uh, come to this gridlock that we've come to be familiar with over and over. So we've got to get out of that gridlock. We've got to get, um, independents, third party people more into the, uh, national political scene. Uh, so we've got to get the the democrats and republicans we got to get out of that trap get out of that prison system that they've got all americans trapped in and and move away from their system which is obviously not very good it's now bipolar you know i i, I kind of have a feeling that this is one time where if you had more protagonists meaning if there were more than two parties uh we would know that you have to make a deal to get things done when you just have two parties it's yes or no and uh 
it creates a problem that way. So, uh, you know, I, I think I, I think that's pretty much it as well. Now, the state of Trump, why did you create a, a whole chapter called the state of Trump? Well, that's, I mean, it's kind of amusing, actually, but um, obviously I don't recognize Trump as a president um, because uh, he's number one, he's not qualified to be president mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, he, basically his presidency just created so much chaos that, you know, um, you know, this is part of the problem with America is that you know, he took over basically the Republican Party, mm -hmm. and it's not Republicans anymore, really. It's, it's Trump's. It's yeah. Trump's party. It's a party yeah. of Trump. And so um, his thing is to create chaos in America so he can do whatever he wants. Now, so, the man uh, got 74 million people, Randy. Uh, tell me something. Uh, are those 74 million people Trump people or are those 74 million people uh, just a small fraction really, really, or just Republicans that have to vote Republican in their minds? Well, I think that part of that's true. I think part of them have to vote, you know, they must vote Republican because they have, to, especially the uh, establishment Republicans. Um, I mean, I have to give them credit. They really got out the vote. But um, but you see, we're just dealing with those same two parties, right? Uh, antagonizing each other, and uh, now keep in mind that the the votes were high. You know, Biden and, and uh, Trump got tremendous amount of votes, but there's still a large segment of voters, registered voters in America, still that didn't, didn't vote. vote. Yeah. There's about a hundred. I mean, we're talking millions of right. Americans did not vote in this election. Yeah, I think at least 75 million, we could have gotten at least 75 million more votes or so. Okay, Wall Street right. and the wealthy, or rather the establishment economy. I think, I don't know how comes you had those two chapters separate, the establishment economy and Wall Street and wealthy economy. It seems to me like those two should be merged together. They were before. Okay. <laughs> so I, I separated them just to, to focus, uh, have focus on, on both of them. But um, um yeah, I think, you know, our economy is, you know, it's structured, it's uh, the wealthy 1% basically own our economy. And there's, there's no trickle down. We have to fix that. And when you've got Wall Street, um, the two parties um, working for Wall Street, basically right now, um, the 99% or Main Street Americans don't have a chance economically in this system. So we've well, got to change it around somehow. No, I like that you have that you actually have a, an education in America. And I think that that is something that people don't quite understand. And I think we discussed that a bit on our in our in our um, show today, where we actually said that um, our education, one of the problems that we have is that we've dummified America. So we no longer think about how things work anymore. And because we don't, these guys can, I mean, the only reason we have Trumpists versus people on the left, even as they really support a lot of the same things, is because there are two different narratives that are done by on, on purpose to keep people separated. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, um, yeah, I agree with what you said there, because it's um, American people basically need to find different uh, I call it, uh, as far as the economy goes, um, 
I like to look at it as creating, we need to have innovation in banking for Main Street Americans. We need to have innovation in jobs. Um, and this is where, um, you know, what I call a new deal needs to be established for Main Street Americans, not the 1%. This new deal should only be for the 99% for Main Street, Main Street Americans who are struggling today. So I, we, we have to um, develop a second level economy, if you will, where um, Main Street Americans can borrow money uh, easily, where they can you know, build a house, own a home, home ownership, you know, uh, so the, so this, this is part of the transition, I believe in is to uh, overcome inequality. We need to start there and uh, start working on different levels of economy for Main Street American people and not the wealthy 1%. So we have to develop a new economic system to support the 99%. I'm very glad that you actually said new economic system because the reality is our economic system. Um, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of good economists out there that believe in things like collectives and and these other forms of uh, having more employees involved in you know stakeholders in the businesses that they work. Right now, they're stakeholders, but they're treated just like uh, you know. Uh, I just call it slaves. I think most yeah. corporations treat their employees like slaves, but even as they keep it in a sort of an antiseptic fashion, it's one of my phrases I use that's pissed some people off. But I really think that, that, that until we take more control of our own jobs, our own security, which we are the ones who do, um, exactly what you talk about is what we get. 99% of the people fighting for just a small percentage of the capital. Now, um, what in... Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal. Has it been a while since you flipped that thermostat from heat to cool? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services before you do for an $88 AC start and check to make sure your AC is in tip-top shape. Griffith specializes in carrier, but services all brands. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today. Your local carrier expert. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. As, as an economy, how would you envision a transition to a different economy and what would that look like? Well, I was going to bring this up. Um, I, one of the new concepts that I came up with um, is, um, is called an economic union. Mm. So what if we establish an economic union for the 99%? So that, becomes, that can become their own economic system where you have... Uh, Medicare for all, mm-hmm. you have, um, you know, education can be uh, free or at least uh, the cost reduced substantially. 
And these are some of the things I point out in my book. Yeah, I see the uh, chapters, including the Bernie Sanders chapters that, that I imagine discuss a lot of that. Yes, right. And then, um, so, you know, all of this, um, it, the other thing is there's other, one of the other things I came up with, um, I mean, our government wastes so many billions and trillions of dollars that we never see, you know, never trickles down. Uh, and I, I developed a new uh, a system called quantitative sharing. Wow, I'd be interested in hearing that. What is quantitative sharing? I mean, oh, yeah. almost so like quantitative quanti easing. Yes, right. Instead of quantitative easing that comes from, uh, you know, our, our uh, federal banking system, yeah. Wall Street, and uh, where they get their free handouts from, from uh, the Federal Reserve System. Right. So anyway, so uh, this is one of the concepts I want to develop where, you know, uh, um, so much, uh, you know, where do all the government fines go? We don't know where the, the, those trillions and millions of dollars go. You know, they find Wall Street, you know, millions and millions of dollars a few years ago. Where did that money go? And that I tried to track them yeah. that. I can't find it. Right. So, so there needs to be a, a, a fund or a system called quantitative sharing that um, where American people like Wall Street that cheated so many of us back in the, the uh, 2008 uh, depression, they call it depression. It was. Depression. And so that money needs to be shared with the American people. It doesn't go to the military. It shouldn't be going there. It should be going into uh, maybe a dividend, if you will, uh, to the American people. So, uh, you know, we're the ones that got cheated. And usually, I mean, this, this system is set up that way. But so that's just one concept that can be plugged into a new economic system of the 99%. So that's just one idea. Now, it's interesting because... Um... A lot of things that you hear people like yourself talk about, especially folks who've written books that actually, and the reason why I say uh, written books is one of the things that you have to do when you write a book is sit down and analyze something because, you know, when somebody's reading through the book, they're going to want to make sure that you're not just writing stuff off the, you know, that you understand the concepts that you're going through. And I think uh, those of us who write similar books, we always end up at the same place. And that is, the economic system is rigged, and not only is the economic system rigged, is to unrig the system require a massive change in the way it operates. And I think uh, that scares a lot of people. And until we find a way, and you can tell me if you agree with that, but until we find a way to express a, 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 a smooth transition where people won't starve, or people won't lose their homes, or people won't lose their cars until we can establish that transition that says, look, the average person is going to do just fine. We don't, look, we don't want that, that wealthy person to really feel a hell of a lot of pain, but we just want to let him know or let them know one thing, and that is that the pilfering is over. Yes, right, right. No, I agree. And I, I start out the book by saying how the, the, our, our economic system is rigged along with the political system is rigged. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, the economic system is rigged against, you know, the average American. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't have a chance to survive in the capitalist economy the way it's structured. Well, and, uh, 
I don't know. I, I haven't read your chapter on, on um, you know, on where it comes to the economy per se, but I, I think that I can prove mathematically that the capitalist system is unsustainable. I mean, mathematically yes. speaking, right. it's not sustainable. And until we come to that realization and put it in a form that people can understand that it's a house of cards that has to cave periodically. And, you know, people like Richard Wolff, the economist, talk about that a whole lot. You, it, it, it has to go through that transition where it collapsed so that there's something to build again. It's by design. Very, yes, very good. And I totally agree with that. And it's, um, you know, where does it all end, you know, for the capitalist system? Um, you know, Wall Street and um, the Federal Reserve and members of Congress who are owned by the major corporation, right. you know, set this up for us. And so we have to figure out a way to get out of this system and, and be successful on our own financially. And, and that's one of the things that motivates me to, you know, to dive into this uh, dialogue about the economy and, and, you know, create a new deal just for us, the 99%. Right. And we need to get there in a hurry because the uh, And I'm glad that you just said that. Well, you just said something that's very important, Randy. You just said we have to get there in a hurry. And here's what I'm, uh, why, why I love that. Because as it turns out, right, we say capitalism is not sustainable. Unfortunately, it is sustainable within the next few decades or the next few, maybe 100 years or so, because there's so much more that can be exploited. There's so much more left to exploit. Yeah, right now, Americans are feeling the, the pain of exploitation, right? We have, there's a point that we exploited everybody else and we were getting the spoils from that exploitation. They ran out of those people close by to exploit so we can exploit. Now that China has a growing, uh, a growing middle class and India has a growing middle class and all the, there are a lot more of them than there are of us here in America. So there's a whole lot more bodies to exploit before it all comes down. Right. No, that's that's an excellent example. Um, and I think one of the things that is coming, as, as you well know, you know, the climate change is going to change a lot of this. Mm-hmm. It's going to change our, it needs to change, our economic system needs to change, uh, adapt to a climate change. And of course, our national leaders are not real excited about the new Green Deal. You know, they're, they're really uh, um, working against that in Congress. Um, it gets a lot of lip service, but we need to see some real action on that. And, and um, I don't know whether we're going to get that with uh, uh, President-elect Biden or not. No, I, I'm no. not seeing that yet. I'm not seeing it because this, this is one of my specialties is environment and renewable energy. Uh, so these are one of my areas of expertise more than probably the economic system. But these are two, my two areas I like to focus on probably the most because um, I, I like Bernie Sanders. You know, he wrote his own new Green Deal and then um, very much coincides with, with the uh, um, Senator Markley and what uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Cortez, what they endorsed. Uh, so uh, I think... 
you know, the progressives um, and the democratic socialists and, and all the, the progressive uh, people in the left need to really push hard right now. Uh, it's gonna take a lot of hard work to get uh, President-elect Biden I think we might have a chance with Vice President Harris. Uh, she's, you know, warmed up to the new Green Deal early on. So uh, uh, hopefully we can, you know, get her ear and, and really work with her on pushing the new Green Deal. So this is, this is, this, uh, the new Green Deal needs to kick in as soon, soon. as possible. Because that's well, our new economy, right? There. Yeah. Now, now let me let me just tell you, Randy, because we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon. But okay. I, what I want to say is that um, I think um, uh, you know, what you said, it's it, it's it's absolutely right, right? Um, we have, but the thing about it is that what we have to do is the left has to coalesce first of all, and you know, not yes. be as the kind of left that we've been for so long, which is if you don't do it my way, I go form another group and we go ahead and we form another group and we form a, we have to coalesce. How, however many groups we have, in my humble opinion, we have to coalesce into something that is, uh, that has the same focus and, and maybe focus on two and three things. I don't know what you think about this focus on two and three things. We can, we can be disparate all over the place, but focus on two or three things and right. force that through. And then, you know, we can be as left as we want after that. Well, no, very good. No, that's an excellent point. And the nature of politics calls on us for, to, for us to do that. And so uh, we need to coalesce and, and form the collaboration among many people uh, to make this happen. So we have a lot of work to do. So um, well, look, I hope we can get there. We got to get out of here, but let me just say one thing. First of all, thank you for being on Politics and Right, first of all. Secondly, uh, one of the reasons for this platform is to make sure that all of us in the progressive space have, uh, we can get our, our vision out there and not only get our vision out there, but allow, you know, I'm going to make sure that your book is placed on our platform as well, because I think what's important, right, is on the right, you find that they are very supportive in in getting people to, to do the same things. I think that is something we can learn from that side and ensure that we have a, a more symbiotic relationship with all of those in the left, irrespective of how left you are or, or that sort of thing, so that we can go into one place. So it was my honor to have you on the program. Thank you very much for writing your book. When we process you. your video, your book will be on the screen too, and we'll encourage people to go ahead and get your book. It's always good to hear all different opinions that we can coalesce onto something great. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor on this end too. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. That was Randy Fricke. Uh, he has a, an organization where he's really working to get people together, getting the independent voters together to start voting their interests and not any kind of ideology, etc., etc., etc. Anyhow, folks, please remember that we do need your support. Give us a call at 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738. Or consider going to kpft.org. Actually, that's the preferred method. Go to kpft.org and provide us the support that we all need to keep these programs on air. As you know, yesterday we had the great confirmation that 
this election is officially over. Believe absolutely nothing you hear on the right side, giving you the impression that somehow El Señor Trump can somehow make a comeback. That is a distinct impossibility. I won't say what would happen if some attempt of that sort would be made. But anyway, folks, please go to kpft.org. Again, that is kpft.org. And provide us with whatever support you think you can, because we cannot do this without this. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. I'm Robert Conti. Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelts save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket. I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelts save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket.